God's good, amen? Well, here we are, Paul of Time, that's right. Part three, and next week, next Wednesday, a week from today, will be part four. That'll be our, us not on this, but this is the third in a series of teaching about coming into the things of Pentecost, the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a burden that I have, it's a passion that I have. Um, need to understand that God has poured out the Holy Spirit and we're not to be strangers to the things of the Spirit, uh, but we really, really need them. Some time ago, I did a series in our home church that I actually borrowed from a friend of mine by his permission, uh, taken out of Second Kings chapter 2, when Elijah was going to be translated up to heaven, and he has this guy called... Elisha with him and he tested Elisha three times at Bethel, at Jericho and at the Jordan River. Are you sure you want to keep pressing on? Are you sure you want to keep pressing on? What are you after? What are you pressing for? And Elijah tested him several times. I'll just stay there and camp there at Bethel. No, I'm not. I will not leave you. As the Lord lives, I'm carrying on. And then, you know, at uh, Jericho, ah, just camp right there. Stay there. Elijah says, no. Surely as the Lord lives, I'm pressing on. Well, the Jordan River, stay on that side of the Jordan River. No, I will not let you out of my sight. I'm pressing on. And then when Elijah's taken up, he says, what, what are you after? He says, I want that double portion. I'm not going to let you out of my sight until I know that I will inherit that double portion. And there was just a determination. Will not stop. I will keep pressing and 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 keep pressing. And keep pressing keep going until I receive that double portion. My conviction is, is that we need to return to the reality of Pentecost. If you don't say amen, I'll go down there and say it for you. We need to return to the reality of of Pentecost. I, I'm tired of conversions that don't see empowerment. I'm tired of grace that has no faith. I'm tired of water baptisms where people aren't led into obedience. We need the power. And that's a strong conviction of mine. And so, but we need to understand that if we're going to press in, to what we believe is the church's birthright, Pentecostal power, then we have to have a determination like Elisha had. He wasn't going to let Elijah out of his sight. But he was just going to keep pressing in and pressing in and pressing in, and he wouldn't camp at Bethel, he wouldn't camp at Jericho, he wouldn't camp at the Jordan River, but he was just going to keep pressing, and he wasn't going to be satisfied with anything less 
than the full measure of what he knew was his inheritance. And I believe that we need to have a hunger. Our greatest enemy is being satisfied. And if you won't say amen, I'll go down there and say amen. Our greatest enemy is being satisfied with where we're at. We have become accustomed to things as they are, even if it falls short of what the scripture teaches is our birthright. Why are we satisfied? This is my question. Keep pressing on. Since it was three weeks ago since I was here, in all honesty, I kind of forgot everything that I shared with you. And... Uh, and hopefully the things I'm going to share tonight are not a repeat. I don't think they are, but there might be some overlap to bring us up to date anyway. Let's take the proper attitude that we need to have, a biblical, scriptural attitude towards understanding the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I see people running after fads a lot. The latest teaching, the latest revelation, the latest fad, the latest big name to hit the TV screen, the latest whatever. And I'm not convinced that we're all following the things of God with proper motivation or seeking for them. One of the things that um, I recognize is that there tends to be an obsession with you having or me having or people running after personal experience has become more important than the call to evangelize. We don't want to pursue the things of the Spirit for our own sake or for our own entertainment or for our own pleasure. They are tools to world evangelism. They are tools to building up the church. And if we become obsessed with personal experience, then we already have missed a direct line to where we should be going. We seek the gifts of the Spirit because we are convinced we need the power to get the job done. I will get down there and say amen. Because we need the power to see the church built up because I'm convinced the scripture teaches the church cannot be built up without the gifts of the spirit in operation. And I'm fully convinced we cannot do world missions and we cannot do evangelism without the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's what they're for. And that's why we crave them. And that's why we seek them. This is not for personal spiritual highs. Thank you. <laughs> They're not for spiritual highs. It's obvious to me, if you read through the book of Acts, it's obvious to me that the gifts are for outreach. Obvious to me. They're just not for my personal entertainment. Gifts of the Spirit are not on display to be for entertainment to the church. Let's come and watch people get healed. Well, that's great to see people healed. Of course it is, but it's not a spectator thing. They're not for speculation. They're not for entertainment, but they're there for everyday application to see the church encouraged, to see the church built up, to see it edified, and to equip the church for outreach, for world missions 
indeed. I think you would agree with me, and I'm looking to see if you're going to say amen or not. I'm, I'm looking for responses. Amen. <laughs> I'm looking for responses uh, because we need to be excited and I don't want to be part of a culture that does not know how to respond. Amen? What was I going to say now? Here, <laughs> Here you know you're going to agree with me. Just like in the days of Elijah, there needed to be a supernatural breakthrough in that time of history when the land was given over to Baalism and there needed to be an Elijah there needed to be a breakthrough. There needed to be a manifestation of the power of God. I would say that these are the days of Elijah. And we, this generation needs to see a breakthrough of the power of God in a scale that it's never seen. That's what it's going to take to recover this generation. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but there's this generation out here is lost thoroughly lost and it's going to need to take a breakthrough of the power of God of the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven to this generation to turn it around nothing short of the recovery of Pentecostal power will meet the needs of this generation I am convinced of that it doesn't need our good intentions. It doesn't need our good programs. It doesn't need our good ideas. It needs Pentecost. That's my heart's passion. The early church was full of the Holy Spirit. You can't read the book of Acts and come to any less conclusion, but that early church lived in the Spirit, walked in the Spirit. The miracles were abundant. The casting out of demons was abundant. Uh, there was preaching with conviction and power that gripped people's hearts. That was abundant. When's the last time somebody came to us and said, Sirs, what have I got to do to be saved? And when does that happen last time? You know, there has to be a conviction. I'm going to suggest about nine. No, I got 11. I have 11 things that this may be a little overlap from the first time that I taught. Why are we seeing a lack? I'll give you 11 suggestions. Some I've touched on, but I'll, if I have, I'll pass over them briefly. Reason number one, I think there's a general lack is because of dispensationalism. There's a fancy word for you. I can give you another fancy word, the doctrine of cessationism. There's another fancy word. It is the teaching in a lot of evangelical churches that the gifts of the Spirit were only for the first century until the New Testament got, was written. And now that we have the New Testament, you don't need the gifts of the Spirit any longer. To which I will give no reply except nonsense. That is so far off the mark, it's, it's crazy. However, having said that, the power of the dispensational teaching is immense. So much so that even Pentecostal, spirit-filled, charismatic churches, whatever term we want to use, while they would not say that they embrace that teaching mentally, the fact is that people do embrace it in their lifestyle. 
which means you can go to a Pentecostal church and not expect to see any manifestations of the Holy Spirit because nobody's prepared to come to church and minister in gifts of the Holy Spirit. So why we would not say we, we don't believe cessationism, I would say, but we still practice it because we don't come to church with the expectancy that there will be manifestations of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we should be able to come to church and say, who's prophesying today? I wonder who the Lord's going to use today. Or what word of knowledge is going to come out? Or what word of wisdom is going to come out? What prophetic exhortation is going to be heard? And who's it going to come from? There's no expectation of that, which means we have sunk back into a way of thinking that why would say doctrinally we don't agree with cessationism, in practice we are. No, it's oh me is what you should say. <laughs> oh me, oh my. And they're just the expectation is not there. The Bible does not say that the gifts have replaced the scriptures and it does not say the scriptures have replaced the gifts. That's just not, you can't come up to that conclusion. Neither can you say the gifts of the spirit will have the same authority as scripture. I would not believe that. But I do believe as you study church history that there was a great decline of the vibrant power of the church once it became official and institutionalized. For sure, it suffered spiritual decline. But I'm not going to make any more comment on that because actually I have created, I'm almost finished creating an entire new series on how cessationism is affecting the Pentecostal church. And that'll probably take another three or four weeks to get that one teaching out. And that's being prepared, it's almost done. The second reason, I, I already touched upon it this evening, is because there simply people come to church with a lack of expectancy of seeing anything happen. You come to church with no expectancy of anything happening. People are, aren't coming to church with, wonder what's going to happen in this service. It's got to be quite routine. And a lack of faith and a lack of expectancy, in other words, we've become dormant. And no wonder the Bible says, stir up the gift of the Spirit. Stir up the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit that is in you. It says, don't be drunk with wine, word, and excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And if you could read that in the Greek, it's maintain yourself being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is our responsibility. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, uh, no, 4, 8, sorry. Uh, it says, then God gives the Holy Spirit. Read that in the Greek. It says he gives and keeps on giving and keeps on giving and keeps on giving the Holy Spirit. And we need to have ourselves stirred up and realize it's wrong not to keep ourselves stirred up. It's wrong not to keep ourselves filled with the Spirit. We need to recover expectancy. The third reason, I will say, is because generally speaking, there's a lack of personal preparation in our lives. There's a lack of pursuing God in our lives. And believe it or not, all, that thing, all those things are necessary. If you want to see God move, you have to prepare and you have to pursue the things of God. 
You have to. You have to. It's not a passive attitude. It is an active pursuing of the things of God that we must have. The important things is, is we need to be people of repentance. We need to be people of faith. We need to be people of prayer. We need to be people who are hungry. I discovered this. I can't feed people who aren't hungry. Are we hungry for the presence of God? How hungry are we? How hungry are we? Because we're in a day where you pick and choose what kind of revival you will attend. What happened to the days where a team of horses could not keep you from prayer meetings? Church was open. Everybody was there because they were hungry. The idea of not going because you were too tired or you were too busy in life simply didn't exist. Your hunger overrode every other concern. I will go any distance to be where I know the presence of God is. And where's the hunger? If we want to see the things of God, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Meditation. Learning to spend time before God. Waiting upon God. I tell people, I don't know how well it goes over with everybody, but if you're too busy to carve out an hour a day alone with you and your Bible and with God, then you're just too busy. You're just too busy. If all the teaching you get is a devotional, you know, in a little book somewhere, you're too busy. And if the only preaching you get is on the CD in the car when you're driving to and from work, you're too busy. You're just too busy. Priorities are really mixed up. Priority with God has got to become priority. It absolutely does. Another thing that um, I, I see that we need to understand, if we want true Pentecost, we have to pursue holiness. Where's the amens on that one? We have to pursue purity of life. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And lack of holiness will really sap the power out of Pentecost. And we have to be people in pursuing holiness and purity before God. That's a real need. A fourth reason I think that there's a lack is because people carry around a false humility. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be used. Me, prophesy, I'm not worthy. Uh, Welcome to the club. Nobody is. Nobody is worthy. But people carry the sense of personal unworthiness. But listen to what the gospel is. God has put his treasure in earthen vessels. Amen. No, you're not worthy, but hallelujah, isn't God gracious anyway? You know, that false humility is, is, is an enemy. A fifth reason is that some people are genuinely afraid of the devil's power. See, in the book of Exodus, the magicians of Pharaoh could work miracles. And, and you see in Matthew 24, the false Christ and false prophets will, uh, will come in and they will be 
working signs and wonders and well, and people are afraid of that. What do I say to that? I say, get over it. I mean, I don't know what else what to say. But the Bible simply says, you know, if you ask your father, your heavenly father, he's not going to give you a stone if you ask for bread. You don't have to be afraid of the enemy. Yes, there's power in the enemy, but I do read in the book of Exodus that the magicians could only work so much power, and then they just had to stop, and Moses and Aaron just outstripped them. You know, there's no issue here. There's no issue, but some people are genuinely afraid. What can, I don't know how to say it, but just get over it. I don't know what else to say. You know, it's simply a, not a good reason. Your confidence in your faith in God. He's a good God, and he knows what he's doing. He's not going to lead you astray. Another thing that I see uh, a sixth reason is because probably you've been witness to abuse or misuse of gifts in the past. Perhaps prophetic words have been given in wrong manner. Perhaps prophetic words have been mishandled. Perhaps people have been caught away in pride with the the gifts or whatever, and they've just degenerated into abuse. I will say today, just briefly what I said before, the answer to misuse and abuse is not non-use. It's correction and teaching. It's correction and teaching. So I won't say any more than that because I covered that before. A seventh reason is because some people don't want to receive correction. Ouch. They don't want to receive correction. Here is a pattern that's in church history. Failure to receive correction always leads to disintegration. Failure to be corrected always leads to disintegration. Always. 100% of the time. Always. Here's a pattern. People get genuinely hungry for the things of, of the Spirit. There's a dissatisfaction. It's good to be dissatisfied because it makes you, drives you to get closer to God. It's good that you're hungry, good to be dissatisfied. Because often what happens that people leave different circumstances, different churches, because they're just hungry for more and they know there's more and they are convinced that you just can't live your life without the power. You're tired of nominal Christian living. You're tired of being ineffective witnesses. You're tired of routine. You really have come to the conclusion that you can't live without the power of God. So there's a hunger that drives people. Following that hunger comes a season of prayer. There has to be a season of prayer. We are not talking about instant stuff here. 
Okay, we have instant coffee, you got instant porridge, you got instant heat, heat inst- instant everything. There's no such thing as instant spirituality. There's no such thing as instant maturity. The idea of you can come up here and I could lay my hands on you and impart unto you everything that I've got in one prayer, how I wish. That would be nice, but it's not real. Yeah, I mean, we, we would, we, then you'd fly to any meeting to get instant impartation. You will fly across the ocean to a revival in Florida for impartation. People will do that. Why? Because it doesn't work. That's not how you get gifts. That's not how it works. There's no such thing as instant anything. You have got to seek God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you've got to demonstrate to him you're serious about it. You know, there's no such thing as instant impartation. How do I get off my notes onto that? I'll never know. I know what I was talking about, prayer. After you find yourself dissatisfied, you're hungry, then there's a season you've got to seek God. And the Bible talks about ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking, and you just keep going and going and going and going because it takes that to prepare your heart to receive. If you get it instantly, you will lose it quickly. What you pay a price for sticks with you. And there's truth in that. And so there's prayer. And after a season of prayer, hallelujah, there's revival. I thought you'd be excited about that one. <laughs> you get dissatisfaction to hunger, to continuous prayer, to God answering your prayer, and there's revival. And you receive what God wants to give you, and you're happy and you're joyful, and God has answered your prayer for revival. Now, you're not going to let, like the next thing I say. After revival comes abuses. Really? Really. Read church history. After revival comes abuses because revival gets mixed in with pride and ego and self-seeking and kingdom building and people taking advantage. That happens. Don't think it doesn't. It happened in the New Testament. You don't even get finished the pages of the New Testament to discover that truth. The Corinthian church was full of abuses. The Galatian church was full of abuses. All kinds of things that went on. And with the rise of the Spirit is the rise of the flesh. I can prophesy that, and I'm not even a prophet. You see, because the best way that I can liken this to is the Holy Spirit is the rain that falls on the ground. But whatever's in the ground, good seed and weeds, all grow because of the rain. Even the weeds grow because of the rain. 
And when the Spirit of God comes, there's a revival of the things of the Holy Spirit. There's also a revival of demon spirits, and there's a revival of the flesh. So when your prayers are answered, all of it comes. And abuses begin to take place. Because being baptized in the Holy Spirit will expose you to spiritual testings that you never had before being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's a new realm of new testings. And people aren't aware that you will be exposed to new things and difficulties that you've never been exposed to before. Yes, you will. And abuses come out of that. Now, when the abuses happen and the flesh rises up and people get out of control and don't operate in a way that's edifying, but the gifts now become entertainment, I'm really super spiritual because I speak in tongues. I have the, I'm have a prophet of all things. And the ego and the kingdom building that comes up and rises within it is very real. And at that point, now the church, after you've been dissatisfied, after you've been hungry, after you've paid the price in prayer, after the revival happens, and after the demons in the flesh rise as much as the Spirit of God rises, now you've got a choice. Either you will receive the teacher's ministry and be corrected, or you will disintegrate. And if you disintegrate, the disillusionment will be greater than the dissatisfaction you had at the beginning of the process. And what will happen is you will become a casualty. You will stop attending church because you're just too hurt and too disillusioned and you don't want to ever go through that again. And that's what happens. Either we receive correction or we disintegrate. And that comes to every generation. You've got to make that choice. You've got to make that choice. Now, the problem with a lot of this is that I see that when you're hungry, you go for the things of God, and a lot of people leave what, wherever they were before whatever stable environment they might have been in before, but they're seeking something more. But here's the real difficulty a lot of people get involved in, is they go to places where there's no proven, experienced leadership. Haven't got anybody to follow who's experienced in the things of the Spirit, and it now becomes trial and error as we go and we play with people's lives as we're testing things out. Now that's dangerous. That's dangerous. And people were running after things where there's no proven leadership and neither is there uh, sound theology or doctrine. And people end up crashing and burning. And the disillusionment at that is so hard to take that many people don't ever recover from it, which is sad, very, very sad. I'm a teacher, so you've heard me say things like this before, but a couple of um, analogies I just came across yesterday, as a matter of fact. 
how many think protein is important for your body? Yeah, I mean, we all need protein, yeah. Could I tell you a really good source of protein? Snake venom is 80% protein. But how many would go to that to get your protein? You hear what I'm saying here? Or as an, another analogy I heard just yesterday, just read it yesterday, we all love a good steak dinner. But if it is laced with arsenic, it may taste good, but it'll kill you. Running after the things of the Spirit without good theology and good doctrine, without heart preparation, without holiness, without submission, will kill you. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. We've got to go to the right sources. And again, that's, now this is me talking as a teacher. This is my heart. We've got to get things not just go for the excitement. We have to know what we're going into and what we're hearing and what we're believing. To me, that's so very, very important. The scripture is far more important than our feelings and our experiences. Far more important. Far more important. Either we receive correction or we disintegrate. Everybody will go in that cycle. Read the book of Judges and see if that's not exactly what happened. Time after time after time in the book of Judges. You see, here's the fact that even if you fall away from the Lord, even if you have moral failure in your life, the gifts of the Spirit are without repentance, and you could still operate gifts of the Spirit and be in full-blown sin at the same time. So you don't chase after the gift, you chase after character. You can prophesy and be in full-blown sin at the same time. Want some examples? Judas Iscariot for one of them. He healed the sick, he cast out devils, and his heart was totally wrong at the same time. Samson? Come on, Samson's coming to town. Guaranteed revival. I mean, the guy literally bring the house down. You know, revival, demonstration of power. Samson's coming to town to a church near you. Would you go see him? Because you know there's going to be demonstrations of power. Would you go see him? I like asking these kinds of questions. King Saul. Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He prophesied. Even after he's got murder in his heart for David, he still prophesied. The announcement, King Saul will be here on Sunday. Prophetic words for everybody. Would you come? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Giftedness is no sign of spiritual maturity. Either we receive correction or we disintegrate. I could add Balaam to the list if you like. Lots of plenty of examples. 
Another thing here, an eighth reason that I sense, is that people, in spite of having a Bible in front of them, tend to be, have a lack of understanding of how gifts of the Spirit operate, even with the Bible in front of them. In other words, how many times you read in Corinthians, I will not have you ignorant. I will not have you ignorant. I want you to know. I will not have you ignorant. And when it comes to gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, that's exactly what he says. I don't want you to be ignorant of certain things. Now, ignorance leads to extremes. Ignorance leads to abuse. Ignorance leads to misuse. It leads to discouragement. And it leads to the elimination of the gifts. Ignorance does. Often the only teaching some people have had about the gift of prophecy is the observation of poor examples. They've never heard any teaching on the subject at all. They've never been taught from the scriptures about the different styles of prophecy, different burdens of prophecy, different manners of delivery of prophecy, and often only people have seen is a poor example. Some people think you can receive gifts of the Spirit through impartation. That's very, very popular. I could give you all kinds of names that people have practiced it, but I won't this time. But what I will do is I'll simply say this. It's not biblical. God is the distributor of the gifts of the Spirit. They're his possession. They're not mine. I do not have a gift to dispose of as I will to somebody else. I'm sorry. That's not biblical. It's not right. And uh uh-uh, not going to happen. I wish. You can heal the sick and raise the dead. Lay your hands on me and give that to me. I wish. It's not going to happen. That's a false teaching. Romans 1.11 is falsely interpreted. 1 Timothy 4.14 is falsely interpreted. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. I won't say any more on that. Um, And since people don't, tend not to want to think too deeply about things. Uh, I only want teaching that's practical. I don't want to have to think theologically or doctrinally. I only want what is practical. And if I can't understand anything besides what's practical, then what we'll do is just spiritualize the rest somehow and just leave it at that. That's dangerous. That is dangerous. The Corinthians, let me give you four things in which they were ignorant about when it comes to gifts of the Holy Spirit. The, 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 the situation that Paul wrote to in, in, in the Corinthian epistle was basically this, four things. They needed a clear understanding of the diversity of the Holy Spirit. They were focused on tongues focused on it. They needed to see the essential unity of every gifting of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are diverse. Why do we only focus on one or two gifts? Where's the discerning of spirits? When's the last time you preached on discerning of spirits? When's the last time somebody operated the gift of discerning of spirits in a church service? Tell me. Why are we ignoring it? Why are we ignoring it? When's the last time word of wisdom was manifest? The word of knowledge was manifest. When's the last time? 
When's the last time working of miracles happened? I mean, it is diverse, very diverse. And one of Paul's emphasis was this. There's more gifts than tongues. Amen. There's more gifts than tongues. And there's unity. Many gifts, but the same spirit. The way the Holy Spirit manifests through me is not the same way the Holy Spirit's going to manifest through you. And if I prophesy and you prophesy, you and I won't even do it the same way. Diversity, diversity, diversity in the things of the Spirit. And, but it's all the same Spirit. That's one of the lessons that the Corinthians were ignorant about. Another thing that they were ignorant about was that everything has to proceed from love. It, the important thing is not that you give somebody a prophecy. That's not the important thing. That's secondary. The primary thing is that you love them. The primary thing is that you love them. And if God has gifted you with prophetic words, that love may be demonstrated through a prophetic word. But the point is, it's loving them. And let the gifts be the expression of your love, not the expression of gifts for the gift's sake. Everything needs to be an expression of love. They were ignorant on that matter. Another thing that they were ignorant of is that they thought the gifts were more important than character. Complete error. Total error. They thought the gifts were more important than character. Listen carefully. The gifts of the Spirit are temporary. After Jesus comes back, you won't need them. Who needs to heal the sick when you've all got resurrected, glorified bodies? Who needs the word of knowledge when we'll know even as we are known and as the waters cover the sea? The gifts of the Spirit are just a taste of the future. Once you have the future, you don't need the gifts anymore. So they're temporary. But let me tell you what abides forever, eternal. Love does. So character and love is much more important than gifts. Amen. Hallelujah. Much more important. They needed another thing the Corinthians needed to understand was the value of a gift. Uh, having a gift does not make you a spiritual person. <clears throat> having the gifts of the Spirit do not make you a spiritual person. Speak with the tongues, but if you have not love, you're nothing. Have faith to move mountains, but you have not love, you're nothing. The evidence of gifts of the Spirit are evidence of God's grace, not your spiritual maturity. They were ignorant of those things. And ignorance leads us into abuses. So that's another reason there's a lack. Point number nine, I would say, is... Um, because it's easily observed that we do not follow Paul's instructions. 
What instructions? Covet to prophesy. What does the word covet mean? When I say the word covet, what do you think that word means? I really want. I'm obsessed with getting. I'm coveting. Have you coveted to prophesy? The Bible says, be zealous for. Says, strongly desire. If you want to press into the reality of Pentecost, you can't skip the pressing need to have strong desire. And Paul's admonitions was covet, pursue, seek after. In other words, passivity is not going to cause us to enter into Pentecostal reality. There has to be a pursuing of our part. And when that is visibly neglected, and we don't see people doing that, then that's why nothing happens. There has to be that on our part. How, how long do you pursue? <laughs> Till you receive. Simple enough. Till you receive. Another reason I think there's, we, we lack is that because we have become content with just a little bit. We think that if we break through to tongues, we've arrived. Well, thank God for tongues. I speak in tongues. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some, how old am I? I must have been 40, 46 years ago, 48 years ago, somewhere speaking in tongues ever since. Thank God for the gift. But you know what? It's wrong for me to remain content at that level. It's wrong. There's always more. Keep pressing in. There's always more. Another reason, I think, is because um, improper motivation. Not everybody seeks Pentecost out of true motives. Some people are personal kingdom builders. And that is a fact. Some people are personal kingdom builders. Those are some reasons I think why we, we lack things. I'm going to move on to this discussion. How do we receive gifts of the Holy Spirit? How are we going to do it? Asking is part of it. I'm going to suggest to you, I'm going to give you just some thoughts about how gifts are bestowed. Then I'm going to speak to you about God's side of the equation. Then I will speak to you about man's side of the equation. So, when we use the word gift, in the English language that word can mean a variety of things. How does God give gifts to those who ask? I'm going to give you three options. Two are wrong, one is right. All right? I'll even tell you which are wrong and which are right. That makes it really easy for you. Okay? Three ways to look at this. Option number one, which is a wrong understanding, is that God gives the gifts to you as a legacy, as if, you are a person named in the will of somebody who has died. 
I just leave this in my will for you. Here is what is yours. My death has given you these gifts. That's not the right way of thinking. Because in that way of thinking, that means the gift can be used any way you please without accountability or without any direction or help. It's just yours to do with as you please. Wrong response. The gifts of the Spirit are not given like that. No. Second response. Since second idea, I'll tell you right now, wrong as well. This is also a wrong way of thinking when it comes to gifts of the Holy Spirit. That all the initiative is in the Holy Spirit and you and I are passive members. We passively receive. That would make you the same as Balaam's donkey. And which means you have no responsibility. You're passive. I could use another word, but I'll stay with the word donkey. All right. After the donkey spoke in tongues, because he spoke. Donkeys don't speak. But he began to speak what he norm- donkeys normally don't speak. After the donkey spoke in tongues, folks, he was still a donkey. Hadn't changed what he was at all. We can speak in tongues, it doesn't change what you are. All right? That's wrong. All the initiative in the Holy Spirit, and you're just passive. Wrong answer. Third one, since there's two wrong and one is right, this must be the right one. Okay, I hope so. I hope so. The right understanding is this, that what God gives you is an actual gift and you are an active partner. You are not a figurehead, you are not a passive instrument, but you are an active partner in the manifestation of the gift. Every gift of the Spirit is a cooperation between God's divine initiative and you. Every gift. It's not all God and it's not all you. It is a divine partnership. That is the biblical way of doing it. Now what do I mean by that? It means... The Holy Spirit is sovereign in how he leads and how he guides and how he directs and how he distributes whichever gifts pleases him to give you. That must be met with you being responsible and cooperating. Requires responsibility on your part and cooperating on your part. If you don't understand that the gifts of the Spirit are a partnership between you and the Holy Spirit, then here are some things that will happen. There will be confusion in the gifts of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit made me do it. (laughs) No, he didn't. No, he didn't. And people who think it's all the Spirit take no responsibility for how they manifest a gift, what they do with it, and they will resist correction because they think the Spirit made me. That's wrong. That doesn't cut it. The Bible makes it very clear 
that the operation of any gift is clearly in your hands. How it's manifest, when it's manifest, in what spirit it is manifest, the attitude in which it is manifest, that's all your choice. The Holy Spirit makes you do nothing. How you cooperate is purely your choice. That's an important thing. You will be in charge of the timing of its manifestation. You'll be in charge of the proper exercise and how it is manifest. Saying that I couldn't help myself is not being responsible. It's always a cooperation between the Holy Spirit's inspiration and your release at every time. All right? Even if you are deep in the Spirit. Ever seen people get deep in the Spirit? Even if you're really deep under an anointing of some sort, you are still 100% in control of what you're doing. I say that again because you're looking at me. No matter how deeply you are into it, you are in 100% control of how it is released, how it is manifested, and how it is exercised. 100% in control. The Holy Spirit doesn't take away your will in anything. That's important. The freedom of your human will at no time is ever impaired by the anointing and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Never. You always retain control. Oh, the Spirit made me do it. No, he didn't. I couldn't help myself. Yes, you could. It's cooperation. The Holy Spirit's sovereign initiative and your response of releasing it. It is partnership, partnership, partnership. Such an important thing. The gifts of the Spirit are given in that manner. The Bible is very plain upon those. In other words, I could put it like this. When the Holy Spirit distributes gifts to you, you are not the owner of them. They're the Spirit's gifts. You are the steward of them, not the owner. Which means it's not yours to give away to other people. You are the steward of them, not the owner of them. You are managing that which belongs to someone else. Important principles and understanding in moving. You see, lack of understanding these things have led to all kinds of behavioral issues in, in, in spirit-filled churches that create a lot of difficulties and a lot of problems, for sure. All right? Um, I've already dealt with this thing about impartation, laying hands on people. Yes, there is a biblical laying on of hands, but I will argue to the nth degree that when Moses laid his hands upon Joshua, there was not an instantaneous transfer of wisdom. No. It was called a lifetime of association that took that transfer. 
When Paul and the elders laid their hands upon Timothy, there was not an instant impartation. No. Long-term relationship, yes. And you know, if you stick with me long enough, you just might pick up a lot of my heart and the way I think. If I stick with you long enough and I'm mentoring under you for 10 years, I probably will pick up a lot of your heart in the way. It's not an instant laying hands upon you. You see, what we want is instant everything. You have instant coffee, you have instant everything. And then we want instant spirituality. We want instant operation of gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so the, the guy comes along and preaches, I got something for everybody here. Let me lay hands and impart to you these gifts of the Spirit. And you get it instantly. How I wish. It doesn't work that way. If you want my spirit, then hang around me for 10 years. Have relationship with me. Intimate relationship with me, where I get to talk one-on-one with you a lot. Where there's a father-son relationship going on here. Where there's constant impartation through talking and sharing and pouring my heart into yours and you pour back to me. You know what? You might get some impartation that way. It comes through long-term association, not instant laying on of hands. That's how biblical impartation works. Elisha was 10 years with Elijah before he got Elijah's mantle. So that's important, all right? Gifts of the Spirit are, are manifestations, you know, how the shining forth. Let me just review quickly. You need to seek after them, covet them. And that means a definite attitude, not passively waiting for things. Seeking after, definite attitude. Never put the gift before the giver. Never put the gift before the giver. Jesus is more important than the gifts. Amen? Jesus is more important than the gifts. The ultimate thought or the spiritual gifts are in the whole body rather than you as an individual. You have to see yourselves as a member of a corporate people, a member of the body of Christ. The gifts are in the body. And we have to start thinking body mentality instead of just me and Jesus. We have our own thing going. All right? The gifts are in the body, and you're a member of the body, and you're not going to get all of them yourself. You have to think one another relationships. We also have to understand that the Holy Spirit can manifest any gift he wants through any person he wants at any time. It's his sovereignty. Now, normally there will be certain gifts that operate within you Uh, more often than other gifts because that's God's choice but that doesn't limit God he can manifest any gift he wants through you at any time he wants it's his sovereignty in making those choices another thing is this in opposition to occult you are not a medium you're not a channel you are a vessel now what's the difference between those words your vessel means this. Your own personality remains with you. It will never change. You will not become something you're not normally not. You will keep your own personality. Your thoughts, your feelings, and your will are still you. You're not always going to be possessed and all of a sudden I'm not me anymore. You're not going to be possessed. You're going to be filled 
and you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and who you really are will really shine forth like never before, but it's still you. It's still you. You haven't turned into somebody else. Where with old cult, you change personalities. With the Holy Spirit, you'll never change your personality. You're you. Thank God for that. Amen? Amen. So those are just some general statements about God giving, bestowing gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's move on to God's side of the equation. God's side of the equation. I got more scriptures here that I can possibly have time to read out. I'll just let you go on a search for them and find them yourself. God is sovereign. He makes the choices. He distributes as he wills. You ever wish God gave you other gifts than what you got? Well, maybe. Talk to him about it. But he makes the choices. He is sovereign. There are certain gifts of the Spirit I know I have in my life. I believe that I operate in what a biblical, what's called a word of knowledge, though it probably might be a different definition that I have than you have about what a word of knowledge is. But I believe that God has given me that gift. I believe that God has given me a gift of faith that operates at certain times and certain things. I'll tell you what gifts I don't have. I wish I did, but I do not have a gift of healing. I wish that I did. Everybody I pray for gets sick. No, <laughs> no not on first. I'm just joking with you. you know, but, but it's not my strong flow at all. What my flow is is that when I speak, light bulbs go on in people's heads and they say things they've never seen before. That's the word of knowledge operating. I believe that God has given me that. I don't know how to explain it, but sometimes when I pray for people, you're a total stranger to me, but if I make physical contact, lay my hand on somebody, I don't I know how to explain it, but I just know that I know that I know something about you. I just know what God wants us. I just know. Here's your, I know. I know what you're, all you do is touch you, and I know. I can't explain it. But it's God's choice. God is the one that makes the choice. Okay, he can express that choice through people. He can tell somebody through prophecy if that's what he wants to do. Um, but the, the point is that God's in control. They are his gifts, not yours. He distributes as he sees fit, not as we see fit. Okay, now God will take into account your personality, your temperament. I will get into that as well. But let me flip over to now our side. We're seeking, we're asking, we're coveting, we're strolling, desiring. What is our side of this equation? Number one, you have to surrender to God's choice. No, I wanted to be an apostle. <laughs> surrender to God's choice. Another thing that's important from our side is this. As I said, you will enter into a new dimension of battle that you have not experienced before. It wasn't until after Jesus was had the Holy Spirit come on him in the form of a dove that he experienced temptation in the wilderness. He never had that experience prior to the Holy Spirit coming upon him. 
Therefore, since you realize that you're going to be taken into new dimensions, then you better, on your part, make sure that you are dedicated to God's glory. Make the decision. You have to be dedicated to the glory of God. Okay, now here's the human side. God's side is that he's sovereign. But just because he is sovereign doesn't mean you don't have to pray. Just because he is sovereign does not mean you don't have to pray. It is our responsibility to ask, to seek, to knock, to covet, to thirst, to yield, to earnestly desire, to drink, to set our heart upon these things. That's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to exercise faith. Romans 12, we prophesy according to the proportion of faith that we have. It's our responsibility to ask in faith, and we must exercise faith. It's our responsibility to keep the gifts of the Spirit stirred up. Stir up the gift that is in you, Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy uh, 1.6. Stir it up. If you could read that in the Greek language, it means blow some air upon those coals. Don't let the embers go out. It's your responsibility to keep breathing. Keep yourself before God. Keep yourself in prayer. Keep yourself in the meditation of the scripture. Keep yourself seeking God. Keep yourself hearing his voice. It's your responsibility. Okay? Um, don't let them lie dormant. First uh, Timothy 4.14, uh, neglect not the gift that is in you. Now that word neglect is interesting. It means pay it some attention. If you don't pay attention, the fire will go out. If you don't keep it stoked, the fire will go out. God has given the gifts, but it's our responsibility to keep it functioning. All right? When it says neglect not the gift, another way of saying that in English is don't make light of it. Don't treat this as unimportant. If you don't pay attention to this, you'll lose it. That's our responsibility that we have. In other words, you have to tend to the exercise of the gifts that you have. That's our responsibility. Okay, we have words like quench not the spirit, grieve not the spirit, resist not the spirit. So there's man's side. So you got an idea of how the gifts are bestowed. You got an idea of what God's side of the equation is. Now you have an idea of what our side of the equation is. All right, so in seeking to know the will of God when it comes to the gifts of the spirit, let me give you some considerations to, to think about. First of all, we've already said it. 1 Corinthians 12, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4, uh, the gifts are received by the will of the Holy Spirit. He makes the choices. He makes the choices. But if we are seeking gifts of the Spirit, here's a good question you could ask yourself. Not so much what gift do I want, but what ministry do I believe God is giving me? That is the far better question. 
not what gift do I want, but what ministry is God giving me? What do I have a burden for? What has God placed on my heart? And then you will discover that God will give you the gifts appropriate to the ministry he's called you to so that you can fulfill your ministry with supernatural gifts. You follow what I'm saying? Okay, for instance, in my, if my burden, and here's my passion, here's my burden, is to cause Christians to mature so people no longer remain babes, to become adult Christians in their thinking, which gifts of the Spirit do you think I should have? Workings of miracles, right? Oh, I wish. Healing the sick, right? Well, God can use those. And there's times when I might be confronted with that. But if the passion and the burden of my heart is to see people mature, which, and that is the passion of my heart, then the obvious gift is word of knowledge which I believe God has given me. If you're pastoral, if that's the burden of your heart, what gifts? Well, in order to be good pastoral work supernaturally, you might need something called discerning of spirits because you need to see the motives that are in people's hearts. You need to figure people out. You need to know human nature. You need to know who you're dealing with, and you need to know problem solving, and you need to know what's really at work in people's lives and what's lying behind their problems and what's going on in church conflicts. I tell you, Pastor, you need discerning of spirits. You also probably need some prophetic ability, prophetic insight to be able to hear what God, what to speak to the congregation. Do you think preaching on Sunday morning is your choice of what you should preach or do you think this should be spirit-led? Well, what am I going to preach? It's Saturday night. What am I going to preach? I hope the Lord gives me something real quick. I hope you have an idea of prophetically what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to the church if it's your responsibility to speak to the church. So in other words, God will give you the gifts that will help you to fulfill the burden and the ministry and the calling upon your life. You know, if you don't have a gift of hospitality, what do you need a mansion of a house for? You know, I mean, it's just, but if you've been called to hospitality and to put people up and, and look after them and care for them, then I understand. But sometimes we want things to which we're not called to do. So God will give you the giftings that go with the burden and the calling of your heart. So the better question for you to ask is what calling, what ministry is God placed on my heart? Then you'll discover the gifts that go with that calling is what he'll give you. All right? Another thing to consider, God is attracted to humility. He is attracted to humility. He stiff arms the proud. I don't want God to stiff arm me. Humble. God likes people who are humble. Aren't you glad that God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise? Praise God, that's you and me. Hallelujah. Another thing. When God created you, 
knit you together in your mother's womb. Now the word that's in this generation that wasn't in my generation of growing up is he made you a certain DNA. Boy, when I was growing up, I never heard that phrase. Now everybody knows that phrase, DNA, which means you were created with uniqueness that nobody else in the whole universe or time will ever have exactly like you. No two snowflakes are alike and no two people in creation are exactly the same. You are one of a kind. Did you know that? One of a kind. Now, why am I saying that? Because you were created with a temperament and a general makeup that nobody else has. If I was not doing what I was doing, my profession would have been a math teacher. I love problem solving. I love algebra. I would love that kind of stuff. The more complicated it is, the happier I am. The simpler it is, I can't hardly hack it. I want complicated issues and get them sorted out. And let me put that thousand number question into order for you and get it sorted out in the order. I'd love it. That would make me live. And if I wasn't doing that, I'd like to be a lawyer and argue cases in court and show the case thoroughly and confound everybody else and why you have to believe it from that point of view. I'd love doing that. Why? Because that's my makeup. I'm analytical. I'm deeply analytical. And you know what? It comes out when I teach. I slice the scripture apart, examine all the parts, and put it all back together for you, and you can see the picture. I love it. Now, you see, God takes your temperament into consideration, and the giftings and the calling that he's given you will go with your temperament. You don't change who you are. You're anointed, filled with the Spirit, and you become the best ever you. But it's still you. Your temperament, your general makeup doesn't change. It just becomes spirit-controlled. Like, for instance... An analytical mind tends to become a teacher. If you have a strong willpower, stubborn. If you have a fiery nature, you might be the person that God uses for workings of miracles because you wouldn't think twice about pulling the lame guy by the hand and telling him to walk. You do it before you even know what you're doing. You're fiery, impulsive, just like Peter. Who did God use with miracles? I mean, not everybody has the kind of Smith Wigglesworth faith, you know. Would you take a dead body and stand it up against the wall and tell it to walk? <laughs> I command you to walk, and it slumps down. You say, what are you doing slumping down? Put him back up the wall. Say, I command you to walk. Is that your personality? If it's not your personality, don't try it. Just because it worked for Smith Wigglesworth doesn't mean it'll work for you. God just sanctifies your personality. Some people are fiery nature, and God uses that. Some people are analytical, and God uses that. Some people are natural orators. They can become anointed preachers. There are some people who just find it easy to believe. Even if you're not a Christian, you just believe. That's both good and bad because you believe anything. 
but you, but it also it also means this that you just might have a gift of faith because you believe. You just don't question. You just go with it. You don't have a struggle with it. You just believe. You see, whatever your natural temperament is, God will give you gifts that go with it. That's important for us to realize. You know, some people are just susceptible to spiritual influences, even when they're not Christians. That means they probably receive a gift called discerning of spirits very easily, more easily than other people. And that's important for us to understand and to know that. All right? Now, we've got um, the new uh, abuses. The Bible is full of examples of abuses. It really is. So look at the clock back there. It's only 8 o'clock. I still got a whole hour to go. <laughs> I just, have I really got that much time to go yet? I said, this is good. I said, have to check that. I said, no, that is wrong. The New Testament, listen very carefully, records imperfections. All right? Just because there's imperfections in the operation of the gifts of the Spirit doesn't mean they're counterfeit. Doesn't mean they're not genuine. It just means we need some maturity in handling. And that's where teaching comes in. That's where teaching comes in. The gifts do not flow through people who are only fully sanctified. But God uses very imperfect people. And how many can say, praise God for that? All right, very imperfect people. Now, that is not an excuse, mind you, for remaining immature. But let's just understand that God uses imperfect people. He's not expecting perfection. All right. In the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, there was errors in them. They were oversighted on speaking in tongues. They were speaking in tongues without interpretation. And if you keep reading it through all those scriptures, some believe their gifts were beyond criticism beyond judgment and they wouldn't let other people bring judgment to what they had to say um, and they were beyond self-control and they would not place themselves in obedience to church government all that is evident in the Corinthian epistle there was error in the Thessalonian church where they were despising gifts of the spirit such as prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, because of pride, a gift called the word of knowledge became ineffective because of pride in the church. 1 Corinthians 13, even faith, the gift of faith, will profit nothing if it's done outside the context of love. Amounts to nothing. 1 Corinthians 14 says the proper rule is everything we do is supposed to edify the church and is to be in order. Church is not free-for-all. There has to be order in order to be edification. Would you drive on their motorways if there was not laws? Come with me to Africa. I'm telling you, I'm going to Kenya pretty soon. No, I'm sorry, this wasn't the country of Ghana I saw this. Red light means don't go, seven more cars coming through the other way. 
You know, if it turns green, don't go. You wait until the seven cars you figure there's still a green light for some reason the other way when it's obviously red. They just, they're not going to stop. They're two blocks away and they see the red light. They're not going to stop. I mean, if there's no guidelines, freedom is not chaos. You can't have freedom without guidance. You're only free to drive a car because there's laws regulating how to drive. Without the law, there's no freedom. Okay, we're talking about liberty in the spirit. We're not talking about license. Big difference. All right, big difference. All right. Love eliminates every misuse of a gift. Another thing we would say, the inspiration never takes away your self-control. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, moved by the Holy Spirit, but he will never override your self-control. You will always be a willing, active, and intelligently cooperator. All the time. You will not be driven. The Holy Spirit does not drive you. He leads you, and you cooperate with full intelligence, understanding exactly what you're doing. The Holy Spirit will not work outside his character. Now, there's one for you. Because I have seen too much in the name of Jesus stuff. I've seen too much where uh, you know the stories. I'll punch you. Oh, the Holy Spirit made me lay my hands on you suddenly. I'm sorry. The Holy Spirit did not direct you to kick that lady. I'm sorry. The Holy Spirit did not tell you to go wham, wham, wham with her legs. Uh Uh-uh. I'm not buying it. The Holy Spirit does not do that. The Holy Spirit does not work outside his character. The Holy Spirit can be strong, but the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And I tell you, if you're out of control, this is not the Spirit. This is not the Spirit. Holy Spirit is gentle. Now, the Holy Spirit can be powerful. There's no doubt about it. Very strong anointing. Very strong faith. But he's not going to operate outside his character. The Holy Spirit's not schizophrenic. He doesn't lose self-control to have power. And yet, I have seen, you have seen people fly across the ocean for manifestations that are clearly out of self-control. I speak about those kinds of things and sometimes I speak too freely and people say, you shouldn't be saying that. And I go, somebody's got to. Somebody's got to. Because it's nonsense. It's nonsense. The Holy Spirit will not produce a sense of fear. The Holy Spirit will not produce a sense of confusion. And the Holy Spirit will not violate the leadership he has set up in a church. So don't tell me if I'm the pastor. The Holy Spirit made me do that no matter what you as leadership say. I'll say, either you or the Holy Spirit is wrong, and I can venture which one is. 
The Holy Spirit will not go against the government he has set up in a church. The cure for abuses is to make sure your heart is controlled by love. That's the cure for abuse. That's say in a nutshell. How much time have I got? Go three more minutes here. The Holy Spirit may give you the same gift he's given me, and you and I might even have like temperaments. Let's just suppose we're close in temperament and gifting together. That still doesn't mean we aren't different in how we deliver the gifts. For an example, if you read the prophet Isaiah and you read the prophet Hosea, they spoke to the same situation at the same time, but if I just give you a portion of scripture, one from Isaiah and another addressing the same situation, almost in like language from Hosea, but I didn't tell you which was which, you should still know who did which one because of their personalities. You should be able to, if you know their personalities, you should be able to pick out which one wrote which. Why? Because you don't lose your distinct personality in it. All right? God uses you. All right? So there's a variety of ways of prophesying. There's a variety of ways of preaching. There's a variety of ways of how to deliver something. Um, There's a variety of ways in which healing is administered. Have you noticed how many ways Jesus healed blind people? I mean, don't you like the spit one? Little? Spit? Why did he do that? I think to teach the Pharisees a lesson. Why? Because they consider that unclean. Spit was unclean. And just to prove to the Pharisees they got it all wrong, what's clean and unclean, I'm going to use what you call unclean and watch the miracle happen through the unclean. I think that's why Jesus did it, to prove a point to the Pharisees that their whole system of clean and unclean was wrong. That's why he did it. Sometimes he made mud out of spit and clay. Sometimes he just touched somebody. Sometimes he just gave a command. There's a variety of ways. You can't put God in a box. All right, so let God be God. Let God be creative. Let me say quickly, how, yeah, I can get this done. Give me a minute or two. Um, take it on board that your New Testament was written to Pentecostal people. Take it on board. Paul's epistles, Peter's epistles, John's epistles were all written to Pentecostal people. And when I say that, means people who knew the power of God, who spoke in tongues and gifts of the Spirit were normal for them. It is the assumption that every New Testament epistle was written to people who are familiar with the gifts of the Spirit. Okay, they weren't strangers to this. So all the commands in the New Testament work with this assumption that these people are already Spirit-filled. That's the assumption. All right? Every person who read those epistles was already filled with the Holy Spirit. They weren't seeking it. They were already filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? But they also began to understand, if you understand that, then you understand that even spirit-filled people have struggles. All right? Because you can read the epistles and, boy, boy they sure struggled in Corinth. Oh, they sure struggled in Thessalonica. And, oh, Philippi, did they struggle there? Hey, these are spirit-filled people that were struggling with certain things. 
So what we need to understand is this. Being filled with the Spirit is not a cure-all. You need the Holy Spirit, but after you're filled with the Spirit, you're responsible to learn to walk in the Spirit. To live in the Spirit. To pray in the Spirit. To worship in the Spirit. But you can't live on a continuous high. What people are doing is looking for emotional fixes. I want to go to a meeting where I go out out the door high. Anybody guilty of that? Well, thank God for going high, but I can prophesy to you. I'm not a prophet. Life is not one continuous high. Definitely not. It's called living even in the valleys. Living in day-to-day life. Living spirit-filled on the workplace. Living. All right? In other words, after your initial experiences, you have to learn to walk and live in the realm of the Holy Spirit. Very quickly, if you give me permission, I'll take it whether you give it to me or not, but here we go. Disappointing experiences. A lot of people say, I've tried it, and I'm dissatisfied. People are disappointed. Let me tell you a couple of reasons why people end up disappointed with Pentecostal experience. One, because some people discovered it's made very little difference in their lives. Yeah, I had this experience. I spoke in tongues, but I really haven't emerged as a person of power. Very little difference in their lives. I asked this question, and I'm strong into this. How well have you prepared your heart to receive? How deep has your repentance gone? How deep is your hunger for God? How fully have you committed 100% of your life to Christ? How full? Have you given your will over to him 100%? That will play a part in how well you're affected by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Another thing that happens is that I can guarantee you this. After you have encounters with the power of God, you will hear other voices after. You will. The enemy is not content to let you go. And therefore, you will have battles. Listen carefully. You will have battles with doubt. You will have battles with fear. And you will have battles with unbelief. And they will attempt to paralyze you before you get going. Trust me. You will. You will. If you don't know that, you just might not stand as you ought to stand. Sometimes people with good intention, trying to, I'm trying to get you filled with the Spirit. Now I'm trying to make you to speak, speak in tongues. Now repeat after me. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, know, you don't have to repeat after me. It should be flowing out of your own heart. Should it be flowing out of your own heart? I hope you're so full that you don't know how to speak English anymore. You know, that's important. Okay, that's why some people are disappointed because they don't realize that fear and doubt and unbelief will plague them and they got to take their stand. All right? You don't understand that. And, and how deep, how well is your heart prepared? How well is it prepared? A second reason for disappointing experiences 
is because people want gifts without fruit. They want power but not character. All right? Listen, if there was ever an enemy of the Pentecostal message, it's Pentecostal people who don't have character. Who needs everyone to preach against you when you behave like that? That too too blunt, too straight, too much to the point? Poor character is one awful advertisement for Pentecost. Another reason people are disappointed is because they don't understand this. After you are filled with the Spirit, you need to keep on waiting on God as a lifestyle. You being filled with the Spirit 30 years ago isn't do you one bit of good today. Your experience with God yesterday was for yesterday. You need grace for today. It's daily. Okay, we have to wait upon God as a lifestyle. Now, it is a mistaken idea to think Because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I don't have to work hard. Nonsense is right. Because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit means I really don't have to study the scripture. It will just come to me. I don't need to read those books. I don't need the commentaries. I don't need to do the research. I don't need to do any of that. The Holy Spirit will just give it to me. I won't tell you what word I'm thinking. It's just nonsense. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a labor-saving device. You need diligence. Gifts need to be developed. If you want the fire burn, keep throwing wood on it. Exactly, all right? Let me finish with this. We have to take responsibility. If we don't, revival will be shallow. We will see the purpose of revival is the purpose is to make everybody happy. I'm sorry, that's not the purpose of revival. But we'll see that because we're shallow. We just have to keep everybody happy to keep them coming back. I don't understand before and after meetings how people can talk with such frivolousness at times. If we have the presence of the Holy Spirit in this room, it should make us aware of another world, and you just can't switch it off. Well, meeting's over. Let's all do something else now. If you can switch it off that quickly, we haven't been in the presence of God. I'm I'm concerned about that. We need a lack of holiness. Let me just uh, finish with this. We can't have revival without a foundation of repentance and holiness. If we want the power, we have to sanctify ourselves and dedicate ourselves. Question. Are you a consumer of spirit things or are you consumed? You see, consumers shop around different churches for the best revival going. Can you believe it? We shop around for revivals now? That's crazy. What happened to the days when the spirit fell and a team of horses could not keep you away from prayer Now we pick and choose. Oh, there's revival over there. Now I think we'll go to that one over this church next week. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Are you a consumer or are you consumed? 
which is it? All right. How can we have water baptism without obedience? How can we have grace without love? How can we have conversions without power? No, we want the things of the Spirit. We want the power of God. We need not to be ignorant of the things of the Spirit. We've got to be hungry for it. We need to desire it with everything within us. God's got his side. We have our part to play. Let's pray for revival. And with that, let's pray. Oh, sorry. You want to say something before we pray? Okay.